Grace, the Amy Santiago of Royal Bloggers. And I'm Jessica, the Dorothy's Boring app of Royal Bloggers. And we'd like to welcome you to On Air, the podcast where two cynical Brits discuss the latest royal news and the truth behind the story. Hello everyone and welcome back to the On Air podcast. We hope that you had a lovely week without us. I don't know if that's possible to have a lovely week without us, but... But yeah, so we're going to start off with something cheerful and fun. Um, and not British or Swedish. And not British or Swedish, yay! Um, yeah, that's fantastic. So um, there have been some new royal babies since we went away, even though I expressly said at the end of the last episode that we're going to have a week off so if nobody could die or get married or have a baby, and they just completely ignored me. <laughs> rude like uh I heard have a baby okay yeah um but yes yeah, so there's been two royal babies um since our last episode uh in Luxembourg and in Monaco so um so on the 27th of March the hereditary grand ducal couple Guillaume and Stephanie had their second child uh they had another boy who is now third in line to the throne after his father and his older brother, Prince Charles, who is our favourite, our favourite royal. whole universe. <laughs> yeah, um, one of our favourite royals, even though he's tiny. So his, his name was announced the same day, which I'm going to say, really appreciate that. Normally with royals, they like leave it a few days. And sometimes, so like in Sweden, they have to wait until they have their council meeting and the king announces it then. Um, and then in some places like Denmark, they wait until the christening. So it's like months before you find out the name of the baby. Um, whereas they were just like, nah, we're just going to announce it now. So we had a baby. This is his name. I know. Uh, I wasn't, I, I'm also really glad because before Charles was born, I was like, hmm, what will they call Charles? And I was like, oh, I had a think. And I threw in like the ones that you knew were going to be there. And then his name was like eight names longer than I was expecting it to be. So I hadn't, I wasn't, I'm not even going to guess for this baby. So. <laughs> yes. So the name they've gone with is Francois Henri Louis Marie Guillaume. Uh, so I guess I'm just going to go name by name. Um, Francois. I think it's not like a super common name in the family, um, but it isn't. It's also not like completely bonkers. Yeah, I think. I mean, I would literally never have guessed Francois if you'd given no. me a thousand million trillion years to think about it. Um, but I, I mean, when a you thousand Google... million trillion years, you would have guessed it. <laughs> I would not. I would have gone to every other name first, and I'm sure there are there's enough names to keep me going. I would have gone back to a few and been like, "Are you sure it's not Henri?" <laughs> Um, but uh, but when you Google Prince Francois, there is an, you know there are previous Prince Prince Francois of Luxembourg, so it's like it is a historical name, but also it's very I mean it's clearly very French. It's kind of in there, France, Francois. I get. I'm trying to think of an example, like a similar example. Um, Something like Eugenie. Like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like like Beatrice and Eugenie. They like those names are um, traditional royal names. They were used with Victoria's children, um, but they haven't been used for a few generations. They're not Elizabeth, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth or Anne, not Elizabeth or Anne. Um, yeah, so uh, or Mary, occasionally thrown in there as an outlier. But yeah, but yeah, so that's a bit, that was his first name. His second name um, was Henri, which I'm guessing you know it's obviously they haven't said this but I'm guessing is for the Grand Duke the baby's grandfather it's quite standard that they tend to honor the sovereign 
Yeah, and I think when Charles was born, his second name was um, Jean after the previous Grand Duke. So they didn't include Honoré like Honoré in his name. So I was very much expecting it in the new babies. Uh, and then they so they had uh, Luis and then Marie Guillaume. So I'm going to go in a slightly awkward order um, and not go as it was. Uh, and I'm going to do Marie <laughs> Guillaume for a second. Um, I think Guillaume is for his dad, obviously. Uh, who's called Guillaume, um, but also Marie Guillaume are the last middle names, um, the two last middle names for Charles, his older, the baby's older brother, for Henri, the Grand Duke, and all of the baby's uncles um, on his dad's side. Guillaume is the only one who doesn't have Marie Guillaume, because that would be a bit weird if his name was Guillaume, Marie Guillaume. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so it's that's like super, super traditional as well. It, it feels very, um, feels very royal thing to do, to have like, part of a name that we pass on to every single person mm. but also it's a really and I know they've both both Francois and Charles have both got a lot of honorary names in their names but um they both got a really it's a really easy way to be like these are royal babies and they've got these massive links to their heritage yeah without having to be like and this is Prince Luxembourg of Luxembourg that'd be a great name for the next one if they have another one Prince Luxembourg of Luxembourg They've run out of sovereigns to honour now. They might as well just call yeah. it Luxembourg. Yeah, I would like that. Um, yeah, I think I, I, over the years I've had a couple of people send me questions of like, why do the royals always use the same name? I'm like, I mean, yeah, they do. And a part of it is because they are they are the keepers of tradition. But also, it's actually not that uncommon. Um, like my dad's middle name is his dad's name. His sister's middle name is their mum's middle name. My uncle actually has the same first and middle names as his dad, which was very confusing whenever we got post. <laughs> it's really only the last couple of generations that anybody has had any imagination about what they call their children. And they've gone way too far the other <laughs> in a, um, a direction and made up a bunch of names, Mackenzie. So, you know, I think actually for a very long time, people did just name their kids whatever their parents were called. And that was that. And the royals are just slightly behind everyone else, I guess. I remember when Charlotte was born, one of my friends was like, oh, it's so weird. They've named her after like her grandparents. And I was like, I'm literally named after my grandparents. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really common thing. I was like, I, and I was like, Hassie, you're named after your grandparents. <laughs> this is just a normal thing to do. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I don't think it's that unusual. There was one outlier, which I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but I think it's Luis, um, which it was, which is Spanish. So it's the only one that wasn't French. Um, obviously, Louis, the French version, is common in the Luxembourg royal family. So the ba uh, baby's uncle is Prince Louis. But it's most likely for um, the Grand Duchess Maria Theresa's brother, Louis, who died in 2022. So Maria Theresa is Cuban. Um, and so obviously would have grown up speaking Spanish. Her name is Spanish. Her family's names are Spanish. I, I mean, I, I, they could have you know what's it called frank francicized that's not a word <laughs> you know how they anglicize things i don't they could have frank like frank francicized francicized, francicized something yeah. like that. um they could um gallic i think it is it's gallic isn't it um oh like, yeah gallic um they could have done that with the name and made it uh louis um but they decided to stick and make it the spanish so i think it was very obviously a deliberate sort of uh nod to maria Theresa because all the other names were very french yeah and I think it was a really sort of a nice touch because in Charles's name there were nods to Stephanie's father yes who both of her parents had died before Charles was born um so it was like they did all the Luxembourg names they did the names they had to do and they're like and this is the personal touch yeah 
Yeah. You know, you probably wouldn't have seen Luis, a Spanish name in uh, Charles's name, but you've got it in Francois. So like, yeah, through the two of them, they've paid tribute to just about everybody in the family now. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if they have another baby, like they've run out of sovereigns to honour. Yeah. They've like done all the like distant relatives they want to honour. I mean, they'd, it'd be really helpful if it was a girl. It was a girl, yeah. Because they can do, they've got a lot more people to honour that way. Uh, but yeah, so that was his name. Not what I would have picked, but um, it was nice. And I also appreciate, we've talked about this before, like when Charles was born, um, obviously it's a bit different now because our Charles is king, but it was very confusing for a while to have one Prince Charles be like a guy in his 70s or 80s, however old he is, and another one be an actual newborn baby. Um very very confusing so there's no other Prince Francoise that I know of so I really appreciate that because it will be much easier for me to know who people are talking about and also it's quite fun to say like yeah. when I said oh I can't go oh Francois, Francois. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said Francois out, out loud in my life before they announced the name pretty early on and then Guillaume did an interview at the hospital I didn't really follow much of that because I think it was all in Luxembourgish um which always sounds like a made-up language to me. Just <laughs> not, not, not the speaking of it. The name Luxembourgish. It sounds made up, um, but it is an actual language. Um, so I didn't watch it because I assumed I wouldn't understand any of it. But I do like the concept of doing that. It's quite a common thing in a lot of other royal families as well, like like in Sweden, for example, where the the father does an interview at the hospital. On the one hand, the press gets their thing. They get their moment. They get to interview somebody, um, which they like. But it also means that the mother can like relax a little bit <laughs> um <laughs> I I remember once going to my friend's um oh, it, was, it was our hen party and I, I we were having dinner and we were with her sister and some uh, some of the like older friends like sisters and aunts and cousins and things and they were all telling us about their horror stories from when they were pregnant and when they had their baby and one of them went blind temporarily <laughs> you know I understand why they'd want to just relax a little bit so this is a good compromise I think whenever they do these like the man does the hospital interviews he's got to do something he's not contributing anything else they released some new photographs of him I think taken in the hospital because they hadn't left the hospital when these were released I think um I don't know whether they commandeered a room for a photo shoot for their newborn baby but I don't know how that worked he looked to me it's like you know that meme where they're like oh can I copy your homework? And they're like, yeah, but don't make it obvious. It looked like someone had done that with Charles, but like, <laughs> they just like painted his hair a bit darker. Like everywhere baby Charles was blonde and blue eyed, he's brown haired and brown eyed, but they are identical babies. I literally can't tell them apart if they didn't have different colour hair. <laughs> I, I couldn't tell any babies apart. I probably, if you showed me a photograph of the two of them with a photograph of me as a baby, I wouldn't know which one was which. And that's me. So I, I just find all babies look the same. I don't know. Um, uh, it's very cute. It's not a. It's not a criticism <laughs> of the baby. <laughs> Ugly but, baby. Yeah, but I just, I just don't. They all just look the same to me until they get to a few months old. To be honest, I just quite like how the um, pictures of Francois were so similar to the pictures of Charles, which is like they were like, hmm, look at these pictures and recreate them exactly. Because I will forever get slightly confused between them. I'll be like, and uh, this baby is definitely from Luxembourg and <laughs> a boy. But that's all I know. And then then they left the hospital, um, which, again, is a fairly standard royal thing that when they leave the hospital, the press are kind of invited to take some photographs. And they left hospital with obviously the baby, but also with, <laughs> but with Prince Charles. He was accompanying them. So, of course, we got some absolutely adorable moments of you know Prince Charles's first 
public moments as a big brother where he was like stroking Francois's face. Um, I did see a video of it. And like, as soon as he realized that people had noticed him, he was like, oh, I'm not going to, not going to do this now. I'm going to stop now. Um, but then for a very brief moment, he was just very sweetly stroking his brother's face, which was very, very cute. Yeah, it was like, it was proper like stroking him, like tapping him on the head. He was like, oh, that's my brother, everyone. That's oh, People are watching yeah. me. Hang on. I'm yeah. too cool for this. Yeah. No one look at me. It's exactly like my cat. Like he'll be all nice <laughs> and sweet. And then as soon as I turn the camera on, he'll be like, ah, oh, right. So this is the time to bite your face off. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it'll be interesting, actually, because... We've seen so much of Prince Charles since he was born. Um, you know, the hardest working baby in Europe or in the world, actually. Um, so I am curious about how they will manage things with having two kids. Because I think in some royal families, there's kind of maybe a dip in exposure after a second child is born um, for various reasons. Sometimes they still have ex- the, the air still goes out and does a lot of stuff, but the younger child doesn't really join in and sometimes they're like well we're going with one child so we might as well take both of them and you get to see them together a lot so I'm in, I'm interested in like which category they'll fall under yeah because like prior to Charles being born if you said how often are we gonna see Stephanie and Guillaume's baby I'd be like yeah we're not gonna see this baby till it's 18 yeah um, and then we saw Charles so much so I hope that they're the type of people that are just gonna be like yeah we'll bring two babies and they'll just yeah. be like wandering around looking super cute but I also feel like Stephanie and Guillaume have done this really good thing of being able to like one of them's with Charles and one of them does it and they kind of like swap Mm. which is going to be a lot harder when you've got two babies and one is a tiny baby yes yeah yeah you've only got so many arms don't you really and so many hands so like if you're holding onto one child's hand how can you also be holding onto the baby it means yeah it just means it's harder for one person to do the job stuff while the other one watches the kids So Charles was not the only person to pick up my big brother this week. Uh, <laughs> not because in Monaco, um, Louis and Marie Ducret, who are the nephew, I believe, and yeah. niece and law of Prince Albert, so they are. So Louis is the son of Princess Stephanie of Monaco. Um, had a baby girl, which was absolutely hilariously t- to me announced by. Prince Albert just in the middle of an engagement yeah it was really interesting because Monaco like they got quite a lot of people because they keep having kids um so there's a lot of people who will like turn up for national day and stuff like that but actually the working royals it's Albert and then his wife Charlene occasionally does things and Caroline his sister occasionally does things Stephanie very very rarely does things so you've got like one full-time member of the family really (laughs) so when it comes to like announcing stuff oftentimes they won't really announce that somebody's had a baby or that they're pregnant you can never really know what to expect with Monaco but it was I've never heard a royal do it in this way just they've got the uncle the great uncle of the baby to um announce it at an event for the Red Cross I I wouldn't have expected Albert to say anything I would have expected that we would find a confirmation on their social media or maybe Stephanie would have confirmed it to like uh Monaco Matan or um point of view who occasionally are like oh has this happened and they go oh yeah it's happened the baby's inborn yeah that's uh but but no it was just in a speech really randomly it's a great way to do it I hope that the royals sneak gossip into more speeches uh she was like in the middle of doing a speech I was like oh and I'm so honored to be here today particularly because my brother's just spelt with his wife it's really unfortunate anyway just carry on everyone be like what so yeah that was a great way to announce it 
and then we found out the name of the baby a few days later, the 7th. They posted a photograph of the, I, I don't know what it's actually called, but I called it a hospital ankle bracelet. Um, you know, the- it's Probably the, more, more uh, specific than ang- like baby tag, which is what I was going to- Yeah, I, I wrote tag originally. And I was like, that sounds a bit like the baby's in prison. Um, <laughs> it's like an ankle monitor. But um, we people should know what I'm talking about. But they posted the photograph um, that had the name on it, uh, which is- Victoire. Very French. Very French again. No known middle name as of yet. And it's I mean it's very pretty, but really difficult for me to pronounce without sounding like an idiot. So I just naturally go victory. Not because I'm like yeah. translating it back into English, but because the R and the I soft around in my brain. So I'm like, oh yes, victory. Yeah. I mean, I had hoped that they would honor their existing child, their their dog, Pancake. He is there. They've talked to him about him as their son. And I'd hope that they kind of continue that tradition and that the baby would be called like waffles or <laughs> syrup. But no, no, they have to go for a human name. Moving away from babies and also solidly back into Britain. Yeah, in a way. Sadly. <laughs> we missed well we didn't miss we did not manage to cover the state visit from king charles and queen camilla to germany that happened at the very end of march but yeah i think we give a bit of a bit of a summary first of all um especially because it was as always not uneventful before it started well yes so originally it was supposed to be like a double tour they were going to go to france for three days and then they were going to go to germany for three days and then the french are protesting absolute shocker to being french yeah um <laughs> good on them but um yeah they were protesting so and setting stuff on fire and uh people thought it might not be a great idea to have uh the president and the king given that france <laughs> does not like kings historically um it wouldn't be a great idea to have them you know eating fancy food in the Palace of Versailles. So they decided to cancel that. And so it ended up being Germany. And I, look, I'm not going to say I'm happy that people are setting stuff on fire in France because, I, you know, obviously the people are very upset about stuff and whatever. Um, but I, it was a lovely twist of fate, I thought, because Germany is where the Queen had her final state visit in 2015. So after that, she went to Malta, but it wasn't a state visit. It was for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. And then she didn't go abroad anymore. She was just like hanging out in the UK because <laughs> she was quite old. Um, and so I thought it was really lovely that it was kind of like the last moments of the Queen's last state visit were in Germany and the first moments of the King's first state, vi- um, state visit were in Germany. And I'm actually, I'm surprised they didn't do it that way to begin with well yeah once I found that out I was like why did they not just plan this in the first yeah place? like it's such a good thing to like be like oh remember when the queen left here we're sort of carrying on where she left off literally literally in yeah. the same place and what you know it was a nice like parallel um and I think could they were going anyway so I don't really know why they had to have France in first but yeah it worked out very very well because I, I mean I didn't see the press make a big deal of that but for me it was a big deal so yeah it was a lovely twist of fate that kind of meant that well not a lovely one for French people but um <laughs> a lovely twist of fate for me that um it meant that we had this kind of parallel um and yeah it's interesting that we're finally getting overseas sort of outgoing state visits again so yeah they did some things but we're just we're not going to do like a point by point of everything they did I think the first thing I 
picked out as significant was the state banquet um, on the yes. first day. Um, and I think one thing that was significant about it was that it was significantly grander than anybody had expected. So traditionally, when people go to Germany, they don't have tiaras. Like even if they're a visiting monarchy, they often won't wear tiaras. But they they really went all out. Yeah, it was like this. This was the night I went to the theater. So ah. I at, during the interval, I was like, um, "Tiara, what tiara is she wearing?" Yeah, because <laughs> I was like, and I knew all the way before people were like, "Don't be upset if she doesn't wear a tiara." Like we might be moving away from tiaras now and mm. all of that. And I was like, "No, I really, I, I had a feeling, a gut feeling that it was going to be a tiara one." And we are psychic, so yeah. I mean, I personally think everyone should get a tiara at a state banquet. Yeah. Since they don't do that, I'm very glad they let Camilla wear one. It's very disappointing. If I was a guest, like they should be handed out like party bags. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, you're coming? We've got a tiara. What mm-hmm. size head have you got? But yeah, so, well, I think that moved, that the, the biggest thing for me for, really was the tiara. So, um, and the associated um, jewels. Camilla wore her kind of long-term favourite tiara, the Greville Honeycomb tiara. I will post photographs in the description of the episode so that you can see if you haven't already seen them. But she did make a debut, um, which was Queen Elizabeth II's diamond fringe necklace, which was a wedding gift to the late Queen um, from the City of London. I think I, I know a lot of people who are like, I want her to wear all of the Queen's tiaras right now. And I don't want that. I want her to space them out so that we get a new exciting moment like each year. So I liked that there was kind of something exciting and new, I suppose, um, but it wasn't a new tiara because I, I want her to space those out. Yeah, also, I really like the honeycomb tiara. Like, it's not my favourite of Camilla's tiaras, but it suits her so well. And it's like, it's just a nice, different looking tiara. So when she started wearing like the sapphire one and other things, I was like, oh, the honeycomb is gone. <laughs> it's back so I was quite happy so yeah that was exciting that was nice I will say didn't really like all of it together so she had the honeycomb tiara which is a very geometric shape and then she had the necklace which is a fringe and is very very spiky um and then her dress was like uh embroidered with silver sort of floral designs and it was like too many shapes if that makes sense I thought Camilla's fashion on the tour in general was just very good like very strong yeah tailored on point stylish I think she is she's really like good at dressing and knowing Mm -hmm. what like suits her and like this was a good look and I think it was her weakest look on the tour quite significantly yeah and not because it was bad but because the pieces didn't go together so well what she's really good at sort of creating a whole overall look I liked it (laughs) and then the other thing I picked out from the state banquet was Charles did give a speech wasn't very interesting to be honest I don't think there was anything that came out of it that was that that notable. It was mostly just like the Queen really liked Germany and I really liked Germany and I really liked the Queen and the Queen really liked me. And that was kind of it. it obviously a bit more sophisticated than that. But that was essentially it wasn't that interesting, although there was a very funny line about Charles hoping that he and Camilla live long enough to come back to the city. Which I thought was incredibly morbid. But then when I thought about it, I was like, no, actually, that's that's fair enough because he might not. <laughs> you know, they don't do state visits. <laughs> from the US who are always over here they don't do state visits to the same country over and over again that often and he'll probably have a lot of countries he wants to visit so actually he might he might not make it I'm not I just thought I wish I could I hadn't seen the video of it but I'm gonna try and look it out because I just wonder if he delivered that as a joke or if it was just like a very morbid (laughs) statement 
I know he did say at one point in the speech he said something like I can only assure you that throughout the time that's granted to me as king yeah I would do and I was just like okay Charles we're all gonna die <laughs> like, you're not even crowned yet come on like someone like he was around the grandchildren someone was like cool you're really old yeah. grandpa Charles and he was like oh I am yeah. he's having a crisis about it he's yeah. going to a script writer's like can you just mention that I'm old in here please I'm a bit I just want everyone to know so yeah the so, second major thing that I picked out that we both picked out was the Bundestag um which is the German parliament yes yes um so Charles gave a historic speech uh he is the first British monarch to speak to the Bundestag I don't know why uh it is 2023 and you would have thought and she's the queen visited Germany quite a lot so you know anyway I think the notable thing really is that he gave I would I say I would say it's about 50 percent maybe more of the speech in German so huge chunks of it were in German and look I have absolutely no idea if his German is any good because I don't speak German and to be fair I didn't actually watch the video of it I just read the transcript um but we've talked about this a little bit before I think when the the South African visit happened um people just go mad for somebody speaking in their language who's not from their country it is for some reason the royals Whenever they go anywhere and they say like two words in that native language, people go wild. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like I've always said, like, it always surprises me when Royals go somewhere and go, oh, I don't really know your language. And I'm like, learn three sentences. Yeah, That's yeah. literally all you have to do. You have to be like, hello, it's so nice to be here. I wish yeah. I'd come back soon. Like, done. And then everyone's going to be like, oh, my God, they spoke my language. I love <laughs> I mean, it doesn't do anything for me, personally. I suppose it's different because we speak English and so everyone just adapts to us. So like if a royal comes to in- the UK and speaks in English, I wouldn't be like, wow, that's so nice of them. I've just got, I guess it's that sort of, I, I don't want it to be, but I think it's probably that innate entitlement that we kind of grow up with of like, well, everyone speaks English. <laughs> um, so it's maybe not quite the same, but I am, I can't help but be impressed by the fact that he did so much of the speech in German, especially because as I say, we don't necessarily grow up with a strong culture in the UK of learning other languages. I mean, I did Spanish at GCSE and I could try for years to speak Spanish and I'm never going to be a native speaker because I struggle to like understand it when it's spoken to me. I really struggle with the sp- speaking language. But I think Charles was one of those people who's really good at languages because he does know a lot of languages and he seems to pick them up really well. And I'm always like, he learned Welsh? Like, that's hard. Yeah. Like, at least when I look at German, it's fairly innate to be able to read it. I could probably decipher a chunk of German yeah. purely because it's close enough to English. Whereas Welsh is like a entirely different. God knows what these letters mean. So he must just find languages. And I just I wonder if he's like, they're really natural to him. And he's like, oh, yeah, just give me a bit in German. I'll figure it out. Or if he's fluent in German, he's like, can you do a bit in German? Because I just want to show off I can do German, guys. I don't necessarily know that going to Eton or Gordonston or wherever will have given them much more of an advantage. And yeah, when Charles went to Wales, he went for like a semester or something and learnt Welsh while he was there. And even if he <laughs> did lessons every day, that's still quite an impressive thing to do. It's always like, I always think like if I could do a cartwheel, I would cartwheel all the time. <laughs> just to like show I could do it. But if I could speak another language, like fluently, I would do that as well. I'd just be like, oh, sorry, was that in German? I forget. Oh, guys, I just know so many languages. I just accidentally switched over. Oh, isn't that funny? Ha ha ha. But I and and you know, they it wasn't just me being like, oh my goodness, somebody can speak more than one language. That's so impressive, sort of British thing. They loved it too. He got a standing ovation. Team child. I was like, yeah, 
speak German. Yeah, they were big fans of it. And I think, so from reading the speech, I think I possibly understand why the speech at the state dinner was so boring. Because they saved up the good stuff for this speech. This was actually a really, really great speech. And it had a lot of like, it had a really good balance of being like a British monarch speaking. And also like, felt very grandfatherly. And it kind of yeah. seemed like a Harold speech feels very grandfatherly. It had that kind of vibe to it. What I expect from a state banquet or a state visit or whatever is to have a speech where they're like they pick out and the queen always did this quite well they pick out things that connect the two countries from across time from across industries um and they kind of are like here's the thing that we did together in the 16th century and that's how bonded we are and it still continues to this day and there wasn't very much of that in the state banquet and I thought well this is really flat it's just a lot of I like you and, and the queen liked you there's no like meat in there but they saved it all for this so like they kind of explored his personal connection through his family and like going to Germany and visiting people uh, in his family because he's obviously got German family then they kind of went through like the monarchy's connection um they went through cultural connections economic connections um through across you know across centuries um and it was it was just a really it felt really comprehensive yeah I did quite like how he started with like our relationship's always been good apart from when it was damaged in 1933 and then completely destroyed in 1939 yeah. but now we're friends again and I was like whoa just drop that in like the third line Charles mm-hmm. but <laughs> it was it like it I mean it's very well researched but yes. there was so much kind of interwoven and it was he'd go like really effortlessly from being like I really love how your aeroplanes have inspired our hospitals also Monty Python is very German mm. <laughs> it's like the way he was going from like very like state visity serious topics of like these things are much to be like also we beat you at the football one time and we're not gonna shut up about it it also like there were a couple of moments where I didn't understand what was being said not because it was in German but because it, I didn't understand it and it was clearly like a German cultural reference about something that they like their stereotypes of British people. And I actually really liked that because I was like, it's very easy to go on Wikipedia and look at like the connection between Germany and the UK, but it's a lot harder to take the time, whoever did the speech, to take the time and kind of understand how they view us and what is important to them, not what we think is important about our relationship, but what they think is important. And so, yeah, I actually liked that there were moments where I was like, this is obviously an in-joke that I don't understand. Because I imagine that that's kind of what it should be, I suppose, is like, it's an in-joke between Charles and the German people. It's not for me. And so I, it felt, that's why I think it went over so well is because it, it really felt so well-researched. Yeah, it was definitely like a speech for Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, because I don't really, I've never really paid that much attention to an outgoing state visit, particularly from the UK. Like I watch the other ones, but it doesn't, I don't get, you yeah. know, an outgoing state visit from Spain to Sweden. It doesn't impact me really in any way, apart from like, ooh, Chiaras. Mm. But I've only, because I've only ever been aware of incoming state visits, they're all very like British. And I'm like, Britain, these are for British people. We have a great relationship. Come and see how much we love you. Britain, Britain. Um, but it, it was almost like, oh, so this is the part where you go to their country and go, you know what? Your country is amazing. And it's and it it obviously makes quite a bit of sense when you think about it. But it's the first time I've like, seen it in action. And Charles did such a good job. Mm. <laughs> he really did. Uh, he managed to go the whole speech without mentioning his own death. Which <laughs> 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. So yeah, I think I, I, I really enjoyed that speech. Um, and then on the final day, 
of their visit, they went to Hamburg and lots of things happened. But the two kind of key moments or events or engagements, whatever you call them these days, were visits to a kinder transport memorial um, and then eventually to St. Nikolai Memorial Church, mm-hmm. and which are both very heavily World War II linked. So the kinder transport is the means of transport that was used to take German children and Jewish children out of Germany to normally to England during the Second World War. Um, And then I think the the visit to the church was very linked because it was Hmm. um, a memorial church, which was all to do with the um, Allied raids, so the raids that the RAF did on Hamburg. So I really didn't know much about this. You know, I I don't know if it's the same now, but um, when I was at school, we did learn a lot about the war. There's a lot of the war in, in history classes in the UK. Um, but it was all quite, we are good and they were bad and we won. And isn't that great? <laughs> There's not a lot of like, oh, and we also did really bad things. <laughs> um, and so in 1943, we bombed the city of Hamburg which was a deliberate attempt to subdue the civilian population. 34,000 people died. uh, And a lot of the people who died also were not German. They were people from Central and Eastern Europe who were being forced to work by the Nazis and weren't actually allowed to use air raid shelters. And it was really interesting. I found an article in The Guardian of all places. I never thought I would find anything in The Guardian that would be remotely complimentary towards Charles, but um, <laughs> it was an opinion piece. That's probably why. Um, but it talked about the relationships between Hamburg and Great Britain. And I'm just going to read a bit from the article and how it ended. It said, for the king to join in this remembrance is a very significant and much appreciated thing to do at a time when many politicians all over the world like to pick and choose from history with the sole aim of suiting their narratives. It matters. And so I, I normally wouldn't have considered this that significant, like, you know, the royals like the military they go to war memorials quite a lot it's quite a normal thing but actually learning a bit more about the relationship between it it is very much almost like an apology visit because we did a bad thing and I think that statement kind of goes to the root of a lot of the biggest arguments in favor of the monarchy which is kind of like it's it's not apolitical um but their job is to kind of unite people and um, they're not partisan, so they don't have. They're not trying to pick and choose things to build certain narratives. Um, and I thought I just thought it was really interesting that kind of it was obviously this person who wrote it was based in Hamburg, and obviously it's quite a significant thing to have somebody who represents the country that you know killed thirty four thousand people in your city um, to come and kind of I guess atone in a way or kind of you know remember it collectively. I mean, it's still not really taught in schools. I remember, I mean, I've been teaching World War II for, I think this is my fourth year. And this year was the year I learned about the Hamburg raids when I was researching. And we kind of did a follow through from the Battle of Britain to Dunkirk Mm. um, across a couple of lessons. And it was really interesting, not just for me to learn, but also to watch the children's reaction when you kind of go like, oh, um, and then, you know, like they tried to do this to England and it didn't work. So they did this back and I was like, And then the RAF bombed Hamburg and they did that really early, like before a lot of the bombings in the UK happened. And I was like, well, I'm not saying like, oh, it's all England's fault. We have or, you know, or like, oh, poor Germany. But it's like you have to be aware. And I always say to the children, you have to be aware of the fact that you are always going to get being in Britain, the narrative Mm -hmm. that, you know, Germany were the bad guys and Britain were the good guys. And, you know, 
I could pick out, you know, overarching, <laughs> overarching themes of the war, but like not every decision made by yeah. the British military in World War Two was the right decision or a good decision. And innocent and every sort of innocent British person that died, there was an innocent German equivalent who died and kind of taking it away from countries and bringing it back down to people. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is something that isn't particularly well known, like the Hamburg bombings. Like you said, it, it was a situation where predominantly civilians died. Because mm-hmm. I think that was it. I think this was like the first time Britain had gone to Germany, but they targeted civilians, whereas up until that point, yeah. uh, Nazis had always been targeting military. And I remember one of the children being like, so like, and they brought up like the Holocaust. They were like, but the Nazis did the Holocaust. I was like, I know. And that's like a really bad thing. But sometimes two people can be making bad decisions and one might be worse. Yeah. Like the entirety of the Holocaust is an absolute atrocity but that doesn't make it right for the British to then go and bomb innocent civilians like you have to mm-hmm. be aware that sometimes every decision was wrong um, yeah. and like it is meaningful I think particularly for we're so war obsessed in Britain for a British person yeah. to be like you know what we did a bad thing and <laughs> we're sorry so yeah I think all in all uh to give a summary of this tour uh, you know, I saw a lot of stuff about how important this tour was because it's, you know, after Brexit and Germany is very powerful and we all want Germany to like us and they don't really <laughs> like us very much at the moment because of all the Brexit stuff. So isn't this important? And if it was important for him to impress, I think he definitely did that. Yeah, it was really enjoyable. I was thinking, I don't remember the last time I enjoyed a British overseas visit that much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't follow it like religiously. I wasn't sat there at the time being like, oh great, they're at the opera house, you know. But yeah. when I kind of looked back through it and when I when it was happening, I was like, it seems to be going really well. And yeah. you know, there were so many I think the crowds absolutely astonished yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it's Germany. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't have thought they'd be that interested. <laughs> there were so many crowds. Um and yeah, it did just seem like it all went well. It was nice to have a real positive tour for once. Yeah, especially after the fact that they had to cancel the France bit because everyone was a bit upset about it. I think, you know, this it could have set the Germany tour off on the wrong foot, um, but actually it doesn't seem to impact it at all. Okay, and so for our last section, we are staying in the UK and we have got some more of the word on the Coronation Street. (laughs) Insert King Charles saying it here. The word on the Coronation Street. Um, The real King Charles, definitely definitely on AI thing, uh, definitely the real King Charles. Yeah, so we've got some confirmed news, we've got some rumoured news as of the Sunday, the things we know and the things that we've heard. So we're going to start off with some of the rumours, which haven't actually been confirmed, but have been setting the royal fandom ablaze for days. (laughs) First thing that I've got is kind of around the dress code. So I heard from someone who heard from someone who heard from someone who was in contact with a royal that, (laughs) um, that they had received an invitation, the royal, and that it said that it would just be morning dress. No gowns, no tiaras. And then a short while, like the next day or something, the invita- an invitation was posted online by a blogger who has links to the Malaysian royal family. If, if it's true, then it suggests that, yes, there's not going to be tiaras and gowns and so on, as there was at the last coronation. 
which has upset quite a few people, even though it's not quite confirmed. I would go out on a limb and say it's true. But also we've only heard it via a royal from another royal family. So there's still a fair chunk of people who are unaccounted for. I'm similar to you. I like I, my personal preference is don't be excited about anything because you will be disappointed. Uh, whereas other people were like, well, obviously they're going to wear tiaras. And so then I think it sometimes doesn't help because then the thing that they wanted to happen doesn't happen. And then they're really angry about it and they blame the royals. And it's like, but they never promised you this anyway. You're getting angry about something you assumed was going to happen. I think from my personal perspective, I've always assumed they're going to turn up in tracksuits. Um, and any more than that, great. But I do also kind of get why people might be upset about it, because it is like the most special event in an entire monarch, the entire reign of a monarch. And people would want it to feel special. And I suppose turning up in the same outfit that they could have worn to any church service doesn't feel special to people. Yeah, I definitely see both sides. I mean, I think this might shock people. I wanted tiaras. I wanted gowns and tiaras for every single person in that chat. But I also didn't expect it, partially because particularly in Europe, and I know the other European monarchies don't have coronations, but they've moved away from big, shiny tiara events. And also, I think it's a massive cost of living crisis. It's not like the monarchy is in its strongest place ever. And I've seen quite a few people be like, oh, you know, this is going to really upset monarchists. And I'm like, yes, but they'll be less upset than Republicans would have been if they rocked up in full on bling. But at the same time, I, I didn't expect them to wear tiaras purely because I think more than ever at the moment the monarchy is focusing on looks as well as what it is it's almost like oh and how are we how are we how do we look right now to people as long as as long as Charles and Camilla have a crown <laughs> like they're just going to be stumbling they're going to go in very fancy carriages you know I I can negotiate it I can neg- like yeah. make a call in my head like as long as I get this I will accept the fact that that's not going to be a tiara and then I was like Kate would have just worn an ugly dress and the lovers yeah, not tiara true. anyway so that would have let me down so I'm fine with it really I can just brush it off yeah we would have been disappointed either way we know that I suspect it comes from the guest list personally if it's true that the guest list is going to be focusing more on sort of quote-unquote ordinary people um we don't have gowns and tiaras um <laughs> And I think it would be a really bad look if like an NHS nurse who got invited gave an interview to a newspaper where she said that she had to turn down the invite because she couldn't afford to get a gown. Like that would be a really, really terrible look. And the only way to still have gowns and to have that, have those people be included would be to kind of segregate the audience into the ones who get to wear the tiaras and the gowns and the ones who don't. And so I wonder if it's just much more of a kind of practical thing to kind of avoid that segregation of the audience because ultimately Charles will be wearing a crown he'll be sitting on a throne he will be anointed in a religion that most of the country doesn't belong to so it is about him being different it is about him being special and better than everyone else that is an unescapable inescapable (laughs) fact of this event and the I mean maybe they are genuinely just like oh well if we don't wear tiaras everyone will forget that we're massively wealthy compared to everyone else but I I wonder if it is just more of a practical thing of like most of the people in the audience will not have this anyway so why don't we just have none of them have it I also wonder if there's been a bit I think partly because we haven't had a coronation in so long and we haven't really had like an enthronement apart from the Japanese one in that long I think there's there's been and I think I'm guilty of it there's been almost like a confusion between coronations and royal weddings yeah yeah royal weddings are all about the fact well, not, it's about love but it's all about the fashion. <laughs> <In that> fashion. <laughs> it's, all, it's all about what people are wearing and 
this is like a great big royal event and we know that foreign royals are invited and foreign heads of state mm-hmm. so and you know in any other situation you'd be like ooh, that's exciting all these different people and cultures in one room for a big mm-hmm. celebration but I mean even if you go back to the the 1950s coronation the, I mean I know it was Chiaras but there was still a very strict dress code like you're yeah. wearing white nothing we've had for so long christenings and weddings and jubilees mm. and galas where we've been like oh my god what are they going to wear what tiara are they wearing yeah. what jewelry are they wearing and obviously we didn't go out and I never say most of us weren't alive for the queen's coronation so we didn't have that um we, yeah. we, we didn't live through what that was like and we're kind of going off you know what we do know which is yeah. a coronation yeah it's true yeah um a lot of it, a lot of the problem is based on people's assumptions about things that are, they've got no evidence to support any of that, that this was going to, you know, that everyone was going to wear tiaras and that Charles is not making people wear tiaras because of the evil Republicans who don't, I mean that in the sort of British sense, not in the American sense, it's always very confusing, but you know, like the, the evil Republicans, uh, anti-monarchists are forcing Charles to not have tiaras and he's crying and, you know, and like, he probably just did, thought, well, well, we don't need them. They're heavy. Um, not many people have them anymore. Even the monarch, even the like peers, a lot of them have had to sell their tiaras because they had no money to keep their stately homes uh, heated. So, you know, even if you look compared to 70 years ago, a lot of the people who you would think have tiaras probably don't have access to them anymore. I do think a good compromise could have been the night before or two nights, whatever, they to have a um, a tiara reception for visiting royals and then we would have got tiaras but the actual event itself would have not been tiaras and so then everyone would have been disappointed i would like a ball i think coronation yeah. ball sounds nice yeah so i think they should do that i don't think they've got one scheduled in but they've got time yeah exactly. everyone's coming anyway they'll be yeah, in the uk yeah. let's just plan one my suggestions are not being listened to i have also suggested um fancy dress like dressing up as a bunch of grapes like in costume we should do that yeah. I really do. Yeah. So I've got loads of ideas if anyone if they're still waiting to see what the dress code is and they want to call me up. I've got loads of ideas for them. Um, and the other kind of rumor that came out in I think it was the mirror was that the the official coronation balcony lineup which sounds like an awful concept mm-hmm. um is essentially going to be the working royals plus the children plus Tim um, and it was kind of put as like it's their last hurrah on a balcony yeah. before they get shuttled off to the back to the core like seven or however many they are now um which again is only a rumor it's not come from the palace I don't think the palace are going to be announcing it in the next week or so no who's going on the balcony I don't mind if they don't announce it at all I'd quite like just be surprised on the day unless they do surprise me by just not having Kate up there I would not like that yeah, just, just Louis no one else <laughs> Louis Haley. <laughs> uh, yeah, as you say, it's also not confirmed, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's what they did, because firstly, that's what they did for what was it they did? The jub- the uh, troop in the color jubilee. Troop in the color jubilee. They had the working royals because the logic hasn't changed, which is, I mean, there's two parts to the logic. One is that it makes sense that it's the people who actually work for your money. And then the other sort of logic, which is kind of the more sneaky logic, but we all know it's true, is that if you restrict it to working royals, then you don't have to have Andrew and Harry and Meghan on the balcony, but you also don't have to deliberately exclude them, uh, you know, in, in, over anyone else. You know, people are a little bit annoyed because, like, their favourite second cousin isn't there. Yeah. But at the same time, they're like, 
Also, Andrew's not there. I keep thinking it'd be really convenient if he could pretend to get COVID again. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm going to infect him soon because we're running out of time. Yeah, just everyone <laughs> sneeze on Andrew. Um, I, I do think it's interesting that it seems to be a thing of, of a retirement thing for the Gloucesters and the Kents. That's what the papers seem to be pushing it as. Yeah, he's like, if they get rid of the Duke of Gloucester, they're going to be struggling. Yeah. Because it's not like everyone else is stepping up. No, um, exactly. <laughs> Something that was actually officially announced, so it's not a rumour, it is an actual thing, is the Pages of Honour. So essentially they carry the train. I think that's what they do. Camilla chose three her three grandsons, Gus, Louis and Freddie, and then her great nephew, Arthur Elliot. There was a rumour ages ago that Camilla's grandchildren were going to be involved. We were like, no, they won't. They're not aristocracy. I was like, of course they're going to be involved. Of course they are. Like, they're, they're the right age for pages. And it's not like, they're not, they've not been involved in, like, royal things before. But I think people always forget that they were involved in Will and Kate's wedding. They have that enough of a relationship. And this is, like, Camilla's day. She's also being crowned. So... Yeah, it was not remotely a surprise to me. The whole thing of the coronation seems to be, it's a bit more relaxed, a bit more personal, less emphasis on like the aristocracy. And so it makes sense that they would pick kids. They wouldn't just go like, okay, well, who are the aristocrats of the day? And who has a son who's the right age, sort of 11 to 13 kind of age? Okay, we'll pick those people. But they also aren't just randomers off the street. You know, it's, it's like, they're not aristocracy, but they are still... The grandchildren of the the queen i think because obviously we separate them like the royal family and camilla's family mm. but for charles and camilla it's just their family yeah so for them there probably isn't a massive divide between the wellses and sussexes and the parker bowlses and lopezes they're just like all yeah. the grandkids and they're going you know when they were doing easter egg shopping and sending out someone to get these jokes they were like right how old are gus and louis again <laughs> like yeah would they still want an easter egg or do they want some money like <laughs> Yeah, it, yeah, it's completely unsurprising and it's very sweet. And I'm sure that on perhaps the biggest day of her life, it will be very comforting to her to be surrounded by people who matter to her. In a, that's very cheesy, but I think I think it was very sweet. Yeah, and I think it was like also like a really subtle way of just being like, and yes, Camilla's family will be there. Yeah. Because I've seen a bizarre number of articles being like, and will Camilla's children be invited? It's like, of course they will. Of course they will. They're yeah. invited to the, the Jubilee and, you know, yeah. they're invited to everything. <laughs> like, no, she's going to be like, uh, Camilla, you get to invite one person, so pick your favourite child. Yeah. Like, and there is like 2,000 people or something who's gonna, who are going to be there. Like, I think um, they can afford to invite Camilla's family. I'm sure the Middletons will probably be there as well. And like... Yeah, they're removed. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, don't just silly. For Charles, he has opted for some guy called Prince George. Don't know, don't know his connection. <laughs> don't know him. Yeah. Um, Oliver Chumley, who is the son of the Marquess and Marchioness of Chumley. Uh, David, the Marquess, is a lord in waiting, formerly the Lord Great Chamberlain. Uh, Nicholas Barclay, who is a grandson of one of Camilla's friends and lady-in-waiting, although they don't call them that, but they are definitely ladies-in-waiting, <laughs> um, and also the son of Charles's goddaughter, Rose. And then, Ra I'm going to say it's Rafe, like Rafe Fiennes. Um, oh, yeah, because they're fancy. Because they're fancy, <laughs> rather than Ralph. So Rafe Tolmash, who is um, son of Charles's godson, the Baron Tolmash, who was a page to the Queen himself. Um, and oh, I had to look up how to pronounce so many of these words. <laughs> and I was like, 
Chamley and Tolly Tolem Tol. Yeah, <laughs> I thought Victoire was confusing. I know. I like, oh, <laughs> this is our like, actual language that we speak. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I actually I know that I've always known that that the uh, that Chumley is Chumley because I, it's a funny thing because it doesn't look anything yeah. like that. Um, but I also do in my head whenever I look at it, I say it Cholmundale, and it's much more fun. <laughs> so, yeah, Tolmash and Chumley. Sounds like a comedy duo, Tolmash and Chumley. They met at Cambridge. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, he's got a slightly different route, I think possibly because his grandchildren are not quite the right age. So George is really a little bit younger than a page of honour would normally be. Um, So he had to kind of find other people. And he seems to have gone for either people who are kind of significant to the the monarchy, so the Chumleys, or children of his godchildren. With Oliver, Chamley and Rafe, um, like both of their fathers were pages to the Queen when they yeah. were younger. And pages, you just kind of like grow too big and then you're not a page anymore. Yeah. So <laughs> it's all very size related. Yeah. Um, but so it it kind of it's a one of those things where it's like it's not just a nice nod that, you know, Rafe is his like grand godson and you know Oliver's dad is literally his lord in waiting and was the lord chamberlain mm-hmm. but they're also like they could be wearing the same uni- you know costumes outfits uniforms their dads wore when they were yeah. ages yeah. and it's it's a very nice sort of continuity link while also mm-hmm. being the you know the aristocratic link that everyone seems to want and also being like Nicholas and Rafe are probably Charles probably sends on Christmas cards like yeah. They're on the Christmas card list because he has 47,000 godchildren and he's yeah. the extensions of that. I think it's actually just a natural thing that even though Charles is picking aristocrats, if you look at the list, it's much more aristocratic than Camilla's list. They are also personal connections to him still. They weren't just chosen because they, because of the title. They were chosen because of that connection as well. You know, some of it is tradition, but also, like you said, these are the people, they're not unknowns. He's not gone like, oh, can you just find me a 12 year old boy who looks like he's an aristocrat, please? Like he's gone. That's not a creepy request at all. (laughs) I do actually know these children, you know. But anyway, I think it's really lovely that George is involved, of course. I think that's the big thing. I think obviously it's it's a lovely thing because he's going to be a future king himself. And he's also Charles's oldest godchild, so um, grandchild. So it makes sense. I think it's that lovely sort of personal touch. Um, I have seen a lot of people kind of being like, oh, William and Kate were forced to do it or William and Kate forced George to do it. I think that's just an annoying conversation. Yeah, it's like, that's definitely who William and Kate are as parents. The type of people to force their children to do things they don't want to do. They literally released a, like a mini statement being like, yeah, we're so happy. Mm. And I think I, it is this kind of anti-Charles and Camilla narrative but whenever you see the Cambridge, the Wellses and Charles and Camilla together, the children or the adults, they all get on really well. Like we've seen not just Louis, but we've seen Charles and you know George interact and Camilla and Charlotte, and they have they're not like awkwardly sat next to each other. Like hello, woman, I've met once. They're like oh hello, Grandpa Charles, who I see three times a month for dinner. You know, <laughs> this is also I think particularly for William and Kate, they're like well, after this is us. Oh, God. Yeah. So and we've got to be they, prepared. They haven't been to a coronation before. And this is a good way for George to be like, just sort of get to know it from a really mm. young age. So it's not such a stressful thing when it's his turn eventually. I think it's interesting because we are adults. 
So I understand that this is the most significant event in the calendar. I understand that this is incredibly symbolic. I know that there's all these things that could go wrong. And I'm but I'm placing all of that pressure on it as an adult with that knowledge of that situation. George is nine. I'm sure he understands that the situation is important and significant, but he can't understand it in the same way that an adult does. And so if you boil it down, George is going to be in Westminster Abbey, which he's been to tons of times so he knows it it's a very familiar space to him most of the event will be indoors and there won't be like bank of press there there'll be cameras and things but having been to Westminster Abbey during a filmed event uh you know no big deal um (laughs) they it's not invasive and he's going to be right next to his grandfather who as Grace said he obviously knows very well um and seems very comfortable with so I actually think that this is probably less daunting than you know, I, uh, before the Jubilee, when they, was it Wales they went to? Yeah. Um, yeah, they went to Wales and they kind of went out and visited all the people who were going to perform and, and all that sort of stuff. And there were loads of press there taking photographs and he had to interact with people. I actually think if I was a child, I'd find that more stressful because it's exposed physically. You're out in the open. There's cameras there. You're talking to people. All of the pressure and stuff I feel is us as adults putting that onto the situation I think for George it actually won't be that dramatic yeah I think you know he's essentially carrying grandpa's cape mum and dad and are gonna be there like I'm sure I'm fairly sure that Kate and William would have gone like this is up to you this is what might happen like there's gonna be people cheering there might be some people shouting and you can say no yeah like yeah but he's also like he's nine like he's young but he's also not a baby like I teach nine and ten year olds they would be fine doing this <laughs> Well, that's the thing, like, you're old enough at that age to make your opinion heard. I remember when I was like five years old, six years old, and this is a bit of a tangent, but I was really obsessed with princesses. And so I was like, well, all princesses wear skirts. So I want to wear a skirt to school. And my mum, I don't know if we hadn't washed the skirt or something. So my mum tried to put trousers on me. And I think I kicked her. I laid on my back and I kicked my legs like I was riding a bicycle because I was like, I want to wear a skirt. Princesses don't wear trousers. So I was like five or six and I was that strong. I felt that strongly about the fact that I should be wearing a skirt because I was a princess and that's what princesses (laughs) wear. Maybe if you don't spend a lot of time around, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time around children, but I think there's a tendency anyway for people to be like, oh, well, if you're a child, you can't make up your own mind about things. You can't have opinions about things, but you're just an extension of the adults in your life. Whereas, yeah, George is old enough to to make up his mind. And if he if they showed him the coronate, the last coronation, or this you know state opening of parliament where they they the pages of honor to participate in that and kind of talked him through, I'm sure he was able to make up a decision on his own. Yeah, and I think when we see George, we see him as like the shy older brother. But when they talk about George, we're like, oh no, he rules the roost. He's full of energy. He's chatty. So maybe you know, in front of cameras, he's reserved. But the George, they know the George they have at home. It's probably like, yeah, I definitely want to be involved. I want to wear the crown. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you can't wear the crown, George. You're just carrying the cake. He's like, no, I'm taking the crown. Oh, I'm hoping one of them does something dramatic, to be yeah, honest. I am, all my hopes are on these eight boys for giving yeah. me some pure joy during this coronation. <laughs> Swear at the camera, uh, stick your tongue out at someone, just run off into the crowd. I remember doing that at a wedding when I was about three it was my cousin's wedding and I ran up and down so much up and down the aisle they were like holding me down <laughs> at the end like stop it I was like I want to say hi I'm a bridesmaid I'm greeting my people <laughs> like, this is for me you're like yeah, this is the vowels this is an important part also the same day they released the information about the pages they released 
two other things. One thing was very small, which was a photo of Charles and Camilla um, taken in the blue drawing room of Buckingham Palace. Which isn't um, blue, really, well, is it? No, it was not remotely blue. I don't know where the blue is coming from. Anyway, the blue drawing room of Buckingham Palace by Hugo Bernand, who does wedding photos and official photos all the time. But yeah, it was a nice photo. They were both in blue, I think. And I've got a feeling that that picture is going to be in the programme of the coronation. It's now their profile picture as well on their, their um, they, so they really must. Have, I mean, they look nice. I, I can see why they like it, especially Camilla. She looks lovely. It's, it's a really nice photograph of them. They look very happy. Um, I can see why they like it. Uh, Colour coordination, blah, blah, blah. But also, I don't need a photo of them. I, I want to know if people are wearing tiaras. I don't really want to see just another photograph of Charles and Camilla looking exactly the same as they look every other day. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like, it was like the first thing they announced on this day when they announced so much information. They were like, here's a picture. Also, here's all these stuff that's actually interesting. But like they lured us in with like this fairly pleasant picture. And then they helpfully went into something far more exciting, which was the official invitations. Yes. So it was designed by Andrew Jameson, who is apparently a heraldic artist and manuscript illuminator. I have, does that mean he's, he like puts torches on manuscripts? What does that mean? I don't know, because first of all, I read it as illustrator and I just kind of glossed over it. And then I read my notes back and was like, oh, that says illuminator. Like, does he, does he like get like a white colouring pencil and just add white to it? No, I, yeah. How, how do you make your money, Andrew? That's what we want to know, what do you basically. do in your life, Andrew? Um, anyway, um, so yeah, his work is apparently inspired by Arthurian legends. And so the we'll, I, I'm sure we'll post a link to the invitation so you can see if you haven't. But um, it heavily features the Green Man, who's apparently an ancient figure from British folklore, symbolic of spring and rebirth, and then has like flowers and wildlife associated with Britain, like Lily of the Valley, ladybirds, robins, and also... <laughs> A lion and a unicorn and a boar uh, taken from the uh, Charles and Camilla's coat of arms. So it has a lot of stuff on it. Yeah, it's very Arthurian and yeah. very lovely. And like the original one was hand painted in watercolour and then obviously they're going to print it. He's not going to go around and hand paint 2000 invitations, which I personally yeah. think he maybe should do because I don't know what else he does. <laughs> Come on, Andrew. There was a bit in the <laughs> announcement. Uh, let me see what it says. Um... Oh yeah, it was hand painted in watercolor and gouache, which I read as ganache. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, great! The invitations have got chocolate on them." Um, Snackable. Yeah. I don't know what a gouache is, but it's not ganache. Yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, my view on it is it's very pretty, but I think they released the emblem, which we talked about in a previous episode, which has also got kind of like flowers and things, but it's a really, really different style from this invitation and I personally think you know just in interest of building a brand um <laughs> it would have been better if the invitation had been in the style of the emblem or the emblem had been in the style of the invitation so that it was like a, a consistent thread through everything rather than it just being like Charles likes flowers yeah it was like the the emblem is very clean and modern and I remember us talking like how clever it was that like the crown is made out of the flowers and here it's just like here is all the flowers you can see and also some ladybirds and also um this massive pagan symbol right at the top which is lovely I mean it's a lovely like honestly if someone gave me that invitation as a tea towel I would be really happy but it, it felt like um 
an invitation that if someone had said it was from a monk in the 800 year 800, <laughs> I'd be like yeah seems about right and that's not like a bad thing it's not like monks derogatory but it is very it's very traditional and I think the emblem was so like modern and it's like it had the links of florals and paths but it was all clean and clear and it's just like it almost feels like one was Charles and one was Camilla. Yeah. And they had a bit of a battle. We're like, right, I'm getting the emblem, but you can do the boring invitation. I did also see that the church, like, almost immediately afterwards was like, the, the, the green man was in lots of Christian things. Uh, it's definitely not, you know, terrible that he's promoting pagan symbols when he's meant to be the head of the church because, nope, Christians love the green man too. It's all about rebirth. All about rebirth. It was a very quick statement that they were kind of like, oh, no, he's in churches as well. Um, as if they kind of were like, people are going to be really mad that he's promoting paganism. They're going to think he's a witch and burn him at the stake. So the only other thing on the invitation I had was, like I said, the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla, mm. which set everyone off to be like, oh, she's going to be called Queen now. And turns out that I've invented that this was already going to be a thing. I thought this was like already pre-confirmed that she was consort until the coronation that they were just dropping yeah. it. Yeah. Turns out that was not a thing, and I just completely imagined it. I think I've been calling her Queen Camilla the whole time, so <laughs> to me, it's like no different at all. But other people, I did see other people getting really like fussy about like all oh, the press are saying that we're not going to be calling her this, and and I was like, but just call her whatever you can call her whatever you want, you know. You don't have to call her whatever they say that we have to call her, or whatever the press say we have to call her. You can call her whatever you want. They try to almost like bridge the gap between like princess consort to queen. Mm in a really bizarre way mm-hmm. because and also I do understand that like initially when they did that first tweet after the queen died and they're like the queen has died like queen is for the second has died the king and queen going to and now we're going to travel up that would have confused people would have yeah. thrown me over like but she's dead yeah I yeah she's just always been queen Camilla and I think I've kind of started doing it in a very petty way because I was, everyone was like oh she's the queen consort I was like she's queen Camilla and she always will be the other thing that was surprise released yes I was going to say yes, yesterday for us, I think, or maybe Friday. I don't know. On the weekend, <laughs> um, was that they are going to, they have issued um, invitations to 850 charity representatives. Um, and I saw a lot of people being like, wow, that's nearly the whole 2000. But then mm-hmm. I looked into it and it's not exactly true. So what they've done is they've released 450 tickets to British Empire medal recipients. Right. Um who do work for charities or different things Mm -hmm. and they are within the congregation so they are going to be in Westminster Abbey during the coronation and they've also got 400 young people who represent charitable organizations 200 chose from charities chosen by Charles and Camilla so from the Prince's Trust the Prince's Foundation Barnardo's the National Literacy Trust and Ebony Horse Club and 200 from charities chosen by the government so the scouts girl guides st john's ambulance and the national citizens citizens service and they are going to be in st margaret's church near westminster abbey to watch it in their own little bubble but they get to go outside and watch the procession departing so they're not actually in westminster abbey they're just nearby in a church it kind of goes with what i was saying earlier about kind of this coronation it seems to me um the, emph- the, cha- the main difference is emphasising not the aristocracy and the peerage and all of these fancy people, but e- emphasising the ordinary people. And so having sort of earmarked seats that are for people who have actually done something to contribute and haven't just been born into the right place, I think 
I think it's a, that's the modern thing. Wearing tiaras or not wearing tiaras is not a modern thing because it doesn't save me any money um, if they don't wear tiaras. Whereas I feel like the actual modern stuff is being inclusive. So I think it's always a good thing to kind of make sure that you have spaces earmarked. And 450, it's not 850, but it's still a significant number. Yeah, it's like a good quarter of that church. And if you think there's going to be like a good other quarter, it's going to be like heads of state or you know representatives of other countries and foreign royals and the family like that only leaves a thousand fancy people <laughs> it's a good chunk of the church um and I think like they had at the bottom of the press release like a bunch of examples of the British Empire medalists so people like um uh, the boy in the tent who's a 13 year old boy who slept in a tent for three years to raise money in his garden or like there was a woman who is a chef and during covid went into old people's homes to cook for them and you know somebody set up the National Black Police Association so it's the massive range of people and massive range of ages and cultures as well like it's not all like John Smith from Wessex I remember saying like one thing I always wanted from the coronation was for there to be like representatives of people the normal the ordinary man in the audience um and I think I'm really glad they're doing it because I think there was quite a few initial like Charles is inviting poor people to the coronation and then they kind of disappeared and I was like oh no he's just going to invite rich lords but you know I would much rather there were no lords and they were all just Tim from Tesco. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the On Air podcast. I just forgot we do recordings on Sundays and kept booking things on Sundays for the whole of April I know Grace getting so, social life so we might have to take another week or two off yes um but we will be back yeah this is not a permanent this is a temporary <laughs> two week max departure for me to go to two concerts that are on Sundays actually one's on a Saturday but I'm traveling so anyway that's irrelevant <laughs> the, basically the point is we're going to be off for the next two weeks probably but yeah we'll be back we'll be back on yeah. the 29th of April to record yeah. what I can only imagine is going to be a wedding special um there's a little teaser for you all in there um but yes until that point leaving you with that cryptic clue yeah um, I, mean, I don't know who's it, getting married <laughs> it is goodbye from me <laughs> And goodbye from me.